This is The Guardian. The Chancellor was at pains to big up the government's record in the autumn statement today. Rather than a recession, the economy has grown. Our plan for the British economy is working, but the work is not done. But maybe the Conservatives can't escape their own recent history. The Chancellor claims that the economy has turned a corner. Yet the truth is that under the Conservatives, growth has hit a dead end. The UK's economy has deep ingrained problems and we're constantly told by both sides at Westminster that there's no money. So what are we supposed to take away from this autumn statement? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Creera, who is in the somewhat noisy Guardian Westminster office, and David Gork, the former Conservative MP, and very relevantly, the Chief Secretary to the Treasury between 2010 and 2014. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Hi. Right, let's talk about what's happened today. Uh, Jeremy Hunt affected, anyway, to be quite boosterish, to use an American term. Uh, Despite lots of evidence to the contrary, he wanted us to think that things are looking up. Over the weekend, he said that the economy has turned a corner and the autumn statement was described as an ambitious bid to drive growth by getting people back to work while rejecting big government. Pippa, what was your general sense of this statement and what stood out? Well, I think there was quite a marked uh, difference between what was being announced in the chamber of the House of Commons and the reality (laughs) outside. Because as you say, Jeremy Hunt was very boosterish talking about sweeping tax cuts for businesses and workers, all about this autumn statement for growth and, uh, you know, making it sound as though actually the economy, as you said at the weekend, had turned a corner and there were great things ahead. When the reality for most people is still really real struggles with the cost of living. Growth is rising so incrementally it's almost stagnant and we don't look like we're out of the out of the economic doldrums just yet so in the midst of that uh, somewhat depressing picture were there things that stood out for you do you think he made headway politically speaking today well i think the thing which everybody will focus on will be the uh the cut in the main rate of national insurance from 12% to 10%. And that will, we'll wait and see whether it will be enough for his own backbenchers, who have obviously called for more significant tax cuts, because obviously the tax take is at record levels since um, the Second World War, and uh, people are paying a lot of their money on tax. But one quick thing to note is that that main rate of national insurance is going to be cut in January immediately prompting speculation as to why the government is doing it right now. Could it mean that the election is going to be drawn further forward, a spring election after all? It's quite boring now, isn't it? The will they, won't they? Yes, they will. No, they won't game. (laughs) But um, I guess that's where we're stuck. David, what, uh, what was your sense of the tension as much as anything between his boosterism and, as Pippa has said, the pretty grisly reality out there for 99% of people? Well, if you you watch Jeremy Hunt's speech, you'd think... Yeah, happy days are here again. We've come through a tough period, but we are through it now. And now, you know, inflation is under control. Um, the economy's grown faster and we can afford to cut taxes. And, and there's a sort of half truth to it in the sense of inflation has fallen. But one of the things that comes out from today is that the OBR thinks that inflation is actually going to be higher than they previously thought. 
And yes, the economy has grown by more over the last year than the OBR had expected back in March. But the forecast for future years see growth being downgraded. And as so the Pepper immediate says, past is less bad, but the future still looks pretty awful. The, the future doesn't look great. I mean, the economy is a bit bigger over the forecast period than it was predicted in, in March, taking everything in, in the round. But we are still going to go through a period where living standards are going to struggle next year. Inflation is still going to be above the targets. And, uh, uh, you know, times are going to be pretty tough. We're certainly not going to see strong economic growth uh, any time in the forecast. And one thing that stood out? To some extent, so much was pre-briefed that nothing really stood out. I mean, I think I, th- I think more that uh, people always say, oh, they pre-brief the uh, budget measures. But w- to be honest, we didn't previously get tax measures pre-briefed to the extent that this was. I mean, he's gone further on national insurance than was expected. I think everyone was thinking he was going to take it down by, you know, 1p. It's taking it down by 2p. Uh, I suppose one or two surprises he hasn't done anything with inheritance tax, which was no, very, we'll heavily, yeah, very heavily yeah, very heavily at the weekend. Lots of noise um, about that. Um, but, I mean, look, the main thing is he had a certain amount of firepower because of inflation, increased tax revenues. He's pretty well spent that on tax cuts. At the same time, he hasn't done anything with spending. And, of course, higher inflation me- means higher pressure on public services, and there isn't anything there for them. Okay. Right, you've both mentioned um, the cut in national insurance. Let's hear him um, explain that from the dispatch box. If we want people to get up early in the morning, if we want them to work nights, if we want an economy where people go the extra mile and work hard, then we need to recognise that their hard work benefits us all. So today, Mr Speaker, I'm going to cut the main 12% rate of employee national insurance. If I cut it by one percentage point to 11%, that would be an extra £225 in the pockets of the average worker every year. But instead, I'm going to go further and cut the main rate of employee national insurance by two percentage points from 12% to 10%. Now, notwithstanding people commenting about that as something significant, Pippa, it amounts to about £8 a week. Yeah, it's not a substantial amount. And actually, a lot of the discussion in the Treasury briefing right after the budget, which we journalists get um, after every fiscal event, was about whether actually it provided any benefit at all. Because, of course, the fiscal drag, so basically the amount of people that are dragged into different tax rates as a result of higher earnings, outweighs it. And there's something, there's a huge figure, something like £45 billion worth of income from fiscal drag by 27-28, far outweighing the amount of benefit that people will get from the cut in national insurance. So a little bit, it's kind of like give with one hand and take away with take away with the other, certainly over that longer five-year period. It's a very small rabbit out of a very small hat. Yes, although you can put the counter-argument is that it's going to cost £9 billion um, by so 27, small, 28. very expensive rabbit. <laughs> well, it's, um, look, if, if you go to cut personal taxes, the aggregate effect, the net effect is that personal taxes are going up, right? Yeah, that, they're putting taxes up. But if you're going to cut personal taxes, cutting NI rather than income tax, there is something to be 
said for it. It's more targeted on those people in work. The government has often been criticised for favouring wealthier, older people. This will actually benefit people of working age. So I think there's there's something to be said for it. But yes, let, let's put it in the wider context of the fact that by freezing all the thresholds and allowances, most people are paying more in personal tax. Okay. Now, there was a lot of noise, I think has been said already, about cutting inheritance tax. A lot of controversy was kicked up um, by that idea. Boris Johnson wrote a column about that in the Daily Mail at the weekend. There were lots of rumbles about it. Is that dead, Pippa, or do you expect that to come back next year? I think it depends what else they announce in a spring budget. And the reason it was so problematically politically this time is that even though it is one of the most hated taxes, according to the polling, it's about a third of people think it's awful. Um, only, uh, I think it's 4% of people pay it every year. So it is not as widespread as people believe. The benefit of going for it, beyond obviously appealing to some of the sort of heartlands voters, is that it does create a dividing line with Labour, who have said that uh, they don't think that cutting inheritance tax would be a good idea. And this, you know, some people feel that there's not much to choose between Labour and the Tories. So that would be a key dividing line. But what else the Chancellor was announcing at this autumn statement was a squeeze on benefits. I'll come on to the squeeze um, on benefits he, in a moment. Yeah, but the point is, is that in a budget in which he was announcing a squeeze of benefits, it's then very difficult politically at the same time to announce a tax cut which benefits the rich politically in parts of uh, you know conservative voters in, in parts of the Red Wall, for example, Red Wall MPs were very angry about the prospect of it because it could potentially be very damaging and, and sort of all feed into this retoxification of the conservative brand that we've talked about before. Talking about a, a more kind of uh, compassionate conservative tilt, so-called, to elements of this autumn statement, it was quite striking, I thought, that the national living wage, it's been announced, will receive an uplift of almost 10% from £10.42 an hour to £11.44 an hour, and the national living wage will be extended to 21-year-olds. That's the sort of conservatism you like, David, isn't it? Well, look, I, I think we do need to move away from being seen as the party of the rich. And I, I completely share the concern that Pippa was uh, articulating about doing inheritance tax. Um, look, I think in terms of the national minimum wage, that's going to be, or the national living wage, as it's now called, that is going to be uh, popular with uh, low paid workers. I think there will be a little bit of pushback from employers. Small businesses will worry a bit about that. And I was listening to a phone in uh, just coming here of, of of a lot of you know small businesses, hairdressers, and saying, "Well, I'm not sure how we're going to afford that." But but look, you know, there is a sort of tilt in that direction. There is a there is a theme which is about making work pay, which is why the focus is on national insurance rather than income tax. And actually, in the context of benefits, you know, they're not actually haven't cut benefits as was widely predicted but I know we're going to talk about this in a moment but the focus is on you know making sure people go to work so that's that's where they're trying to get that's the theme right let's talk about something you mentioned um only a matter of seconds ago um these changes more changes are there ever not changes to the benefits system the government has announced um, that benefits and universal credit will rise by 6.7%, the inflation rate for September, despite um, some rumblings to the contrary. But Jeremy Hunt also announced this. We will ask for something in return. If after 18 months of intensive support, job seekers have not found a job, we'll roll out a programme requiring them to take part in mandatory work placement to increase their skills and improve their employability. And if they choose not to engage with the work search process for six months, we will close their case and stop their benefits. 
Now, to be honest, those of us who put the podcast together were shocked, really, uh, when we watched that announcement. Putting in place a system um, that can stop benefits for unemployed people altogether, it seems to me, is vicious. Um, The measure announced in this statement is centred on people who are long-term unemployed, um, who, in my experience, tend to be the most damaged, delicate, fragile people with all sorts of issues very often to do with mental health, among other things, addictions, another one. And then this sort of bigger picture stuff, making the benefit system even more punitive, it seems to me, is sort of grim for two reasons. One is, if you want people to look for work, they need a stable foundation on which to do so. They need to be able to plan for the future, um, to make good choices and all of that. And if you're constantly threatening them with destitution, if not plunging them into it, that's the last thing that's going to happen. The other thing that strikes me about that announcement is it's not really about the practicality or the efficacy of what's being announced. It's political. There are people in focus groups who say there are people down my street who are cheating the benefit system and I want something done about them wrongly very often in the sense that it won't be as simple as that politicians hear that and then they announce policies like this now david you and me have uh, had a couple of contrasts down the years about the benefit system and sanctions and so on that's my reaction to this i think it's horrible what do you think well first of all there clearly is there's a lot of politics here so that point's right well there's, there's no doubt that there is actually a lot of public concern that people uh, play the system And uh, by putting forward this measure, there is very much a sort of challenge put to the Labour Party. Well, are you going to support this or not? And if Labour doesn't support it, then you know what the Conservatives will say. They're soft on on welfare. If Labour does support it, which I think they are supporting it, then you'll have a rebellion uh, and a big row in the Labour Party. So there's 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 lots of politics right. here. So it has that sort of cynical base. Well, there, you know, there there is a political element to it. There's no doubt. I'm absolutely not denying that. Okay. There, there is also the sort of question about what do you do when uh, we have got a lot of people who are on out of work benefits, um, and we also have a labour shortage in this country. And to what extent? Do you, you know, do you use the stick as well as carrots to try to address it? I've defended the fact that we have to have sanctions in the system. I do think there have to be consequences. I worry this is going further than I'm entirely comfortable with. But I think this is a matter of degree. I'd like to see the details because I, you know, do come back to that point is that if there are people who are, you know, playing the system in the end the state has to do something about it. But you and I both know that that certainly, say, as far as benefit fraud is concerned, those numbers are very, very small. In addition, to use a phrase like playing the system, even if you successfully claim working age benefits, you are hardly living the life of Riley. No, this is absolutely true. But there, you know, there is a fairness point that people who are doing a job that they don't particularly necessarily enjoy feel aggrieved if there are others who you know, are living on a similar lifestyle, not life of Riley, but living a similar lifestyle without without doing um, that work. But it sounds like you take my point that that you worry about the human damage that will be caused by a policy. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to sort of rush to condemn sort of you know every sanction, every attempt to put pressure on people because I, I think you, know, you you do have to have consequences in the end. But I very much. I'm concerned about how this is implemented and the recognition that this needs to be done with some sensitivity because for some people, if you make them more anxious, more destabilized, they are less likely to work and it can be counterproductive and, and you've got to get this right. 
Pippa, Labour's line on this so far, broadly, is that you can't get the number of people claiming benefits down until you address the NHS backlog, because a lot of this is to do with poor physical and mental health, not least after the pandemic and so on. Um, Nonetheless, do you think there will be people in the Labour Party, there usually are when the Conservative Party floats horrible benefits measures, who will be rattled by this and think it sort of snookers them potentially? Well, I interviewed Liz Kendall a few days ago, who is is the Shadow Work and Pensions Minister. Um, his first interview with her since she had taken on the role, and we talked quite a lot about conditionality, which um, obviously is the you know the sanctions if you don't you know you're not you don't get support from the state unless you unless you make the effort to find yeah. work, for example. She made the point that it was in the beverage report, a copy of which was on her desk when I walked in, and I wasn't entirely sure whether that was put there for my benefit or not. That it has to be a social security system that supports people, but they also have to be willing to make the effort to find work. Um, and she also, referring to beverage, talked about how health and work had to be inextricably linked. Two sides of the same coin as I think the words that she used. So yes, it's about NHS waiting lists, but it's also about the fact that the, the majority of people that are on benefits, disability benefits, are over 50s. Many of them are women with musculoskeletal problems. They need NHS support. And the, the, the majority of people, of younger people under 50s that are on that sort of support have mental health issues and aren't getting the support they need. So, But on the back of that, if she was asked how she feels about what was announced today, which she is going to be, she may be asked, yeah. getting asked those questions as we speak. What do you think a likely answer is going to be? Well, when I asked her about the announcements that were made last week about uh, people potentially losing um, access to free prescriptions and uh, legal aid and so on if they didn't if they didn't try and find work, she described the conservative system as as, as mean and nasty. Okay. So I think they've been quite critical about not just that sort of failure to think about things about work across the board, work and health included, but also about how some of the some of the impact of, of some of those people that are absolutely the most vulnerable end of the of the spectrum. And I think it's very striking that of the the announcement made in the statement by Jeremy Hunt, where he talks about giving people, I think it's 18 months to try and find a job and then getting work placements. And then if they if they refuse to to do that at that point, then they lose their benefits entirely. When pressed about it afterwards, the Treasury was suggesting that every avenue would have had to be explored by that point, that you know people would have had to have entirely disengaged from the process. Really kind of failing to, it felt to me, failing to recognise that often the people that aren't able to engage with the process are the ones who are, as you say, suffering from perhaps addiction or serious mental health problems. They just don't have the capacity for one reason or another to be able to engage with the system. And if you suddenly chop off all of their support, then yes, you end up with that mean and nasty system that Labour are talking about. It also sounds a bit like the politics of it resides in the announcing, not the doing. It's, it's to be, as much as I find it monstrous, to be seen to say this and to sound punitive and then leave to one side whether you're actually going to go through with it. Let's hope they don't. Anyway, let's just talk um, about the new shape of this government, because this autumn statement clearly was part of a relaunch. Now, this is the Conservative leader, the Prime Minister, who a matter of weeks ago said he was here to avenge the political failures of the last 30 years and then promptly brought back David Cameron into government, which brings me to ask you a couple of questions, David. First of all, what do you make of that? And secondly... I think you probably count David Cameron as a friend. I wonder if you've texted him or heard from him since he's returned to government. I sent him a text. Um, congratulations. I'm, I'm pleased he's back. Did he reply? Yep. Yep. Um, and um, no, I mean, he's got What did a, you say? Congratulations. Yeah, I just, yeah, pleasantry of, yeah, congratulations. But I'm, I'm pleased he's back. Um, Why are you pleased? Because. I'm uh, quietly horrified, I have to are say. You? A bit, yeah. Right. Uh, 
we're going to dis- we're going to disagree on this one. Then. Rewards of failure and green seal and all that stuff. But anyway, go on. Look, I think uh, in terms of someone performing the role of foreign secretary, someone of his uh, experience and profile and contacts. I think is helpful for the UK. Do you think it in, it denotes a, a step back, albeit a very small step, towards what you might understand as the centre ground? Does it make this government more palatable to you? Well, that's the, that's the second point. Is that um, I mean, I think the jury is out on that. But look, a, a cabinet which you ex- essentially exchange David Cameron for for Suella Braverman, I think, is a step in the right direction. It is a <laughs> From your that's perspective, quite a good swap. That is quite a good swap uh, for so many reasons. Uh, I think that's that 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 is helpful. Uh, the reason I say the jury is out is, you know, was it simply the case that Rishi Sunak thought I've got to get rid of Suella Braverman? It's completely untenable that she's here now. I need a you know someone in a big position. And oh, what about David Cameron? That'll be eye catching. Was it just that, and essentially a tactical move? Yeah. Or was it a bit more of a strategic move of saying, hold on, the kind of more liberal conservatives, we haven't shown them a lot of love for the last few years. They're drifting away. Um, we need to get them back and, you know, we need to reposition the party and be less the party of the kind of Suella Braverman populism. And Lee Anderson more, and, yes, uh, all, and all of stuff. that. Now, I don't know whether it was a tactical move or a strategic move. I listened to some of the stuff that was said. You must have a sense of it, which well, one it was. I, I was initially I was reasonably optimistic, but you know, you listen to some of the rhetoric post the Rwanda judgment and you think, oh, you know, that was maybe it's just a sort of yeah, tactical I mean, probably move. Uh, not long after he, he replied to your text, he was on Twitter saying, full speed ahead, we're going to reduce illegal immigration and stop the well, I think I, I, I think he was put in a slightly difficult uh, position and there was obviously going to be a lot of focus on, on what he said. I, I think the more important thing, and I don't know what he's saying in private, but the more important thing is what he's saying in private on issues like the European Convention on Human Rights. Okay. And that's a really big issue, I think, for the party now. Okay, Pippa, how much influence do you think David Cameron is having on Rishi Sunak politically? Interesting one, John, because if Rishi Sunak is seen either by uh, his own MPs or much more importantly, the public, as having his strings pulled by David Cameron, that somehow he's a prime minister in all but name and that actually David Cameron is the one who, if not calling the shots, is is certainly sort of, you know, whispering uh, clever ideas in his ear then that will potentially make him look really weak. And one of David Cameron's friends told me before, um, when he took on the role, that he saw, yes, part of his new job was going to be about being a foreign secretary and representing Britain and its interests on the world stage, but also that he thought that he could fulfill a sort of a consigliere role, that he could be there as like an elder statesman that didn't have any ambition for the top job himself, having already been there, and offer regular, full, frank advice to the Prime Minister. So, you know, that might well be helpful for Rishi Sunak, but he needs to be careful about the optics of it and how it looks. To say the least. Just before you go, Pippa, um, uh, we just received news that um, in the Commons today, from a sedentary position, the newly uh, appointed Home Secretary, um, James Cleverly is alleged to have said that the constituency of Stockton North in the northeast of England is a shithole. I think he has denied this, but presumably we might see um, confirming evidence quite soon. <laughs> uh, not very good look for a party still with a few of the residues of levelling up hanging around. Not really. I mean, like you say, he's denied it, but the, this was apparently picked up on audio in the House of Commons. And the Labour MP uh, for Stockton North, Alex Cunningham, 
uh, asked Rishi Sunak during Prime Minister's questions about why 34% of children in his constituency were living in poverty. And uh, Cunningham later made a point of order saying that James Cleverly had described his seat as a shithole, which, as you say, um, is not exactly what you'd expect from a senior member of the government uh, for whom levelling up was a key issue, potentially still is, and uh, obviously wants to try and win back the red wall voters that apparently have deserted them since 2019. So, uh, yeah, less than ideal, although we should stress he denies it. Interesting way of doing it. Well, it's a, it's a new item on the ever-expanding list, isn't it? Backing British businesses, delivering world-class education and calling places shitholes. <laughs> right, Pippa, we will let you go. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Right, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we're going to be looking at just how bleak, appropriately, the state of the economy is. Welcome back. David Gork is still with me. David, I want to read you something, a quotation. We are back in a world in which the electorate knows there is no money. They know big promises are unlikely to be fulfilled, even if the Conservatives instinctively want to cut taxes and Labour might want to increase spending. Do you know who said that? I think I said that. You did say that, yes, to the Financial Times um, in a piece that was published not so long ago. I mean, that's a pretty stark statement um, about the bind that politicians find themselves in on account of the state of the economy. We're now on to this government's 11th growth plan. Rachel Reeves said that today in the House of Commons, which perhaps shows you how grim things are. There is some debate about current growth forecasts, but the UK clearly has big problems on that score because the economy has deep ingrained issues um, as regards growth and everything that sits under it, everything that's meant to promote growth but seems to be detracting from it. That's a huge thing, isn't it? And I suppose because we're in this arm-gnawingly long run-up to an election, politicians are basically campaigning, and nobody's going to stand there on either side and tell you what a terrible state things are in, but that's the reality, isn't it? Yeah, it's really difficult. Um, we have gone through a long period. We can, we can talk about the reasons why growth is, has, has struggled. I want to ask you about that, yeah. Um, but you know, fundamentally, unless we can rectify this, we are going to be in an endless position where people are going to be complaining that taxes are too high and by historic standards they are very high and the public services aren't getting enough spending and you know there's plenty of evidence that they're not and unless you can deliver economic growth we're you know we're stuck in that cycle and you know that the political debate is kind of finally getting there but for many years i just don't think economic growth was the priority that we were getting from the political parties i mean you say that political debate is getting there but as i said given that political debate certainly in westminster now is electioneering to all intents and purposes the chancellor therefore got up and said or said over the weekend that the economy has turned a corner when that clearly isn't the case. You agree with that, right? We're still we're still in deep water. Yeah, we are still in deep water. My point about the politicians are, are sort of finally getting there is that I think what you hear from both Rachel Reeves and Jeremy Hunt is a little bit more of a focus on, well, how are we going to get this economy growing? I don't think they're taking the necessarily the risks that they should should be in terms the political risks yeah. in terms of delivering that. But to take the autumn statement, you know, some of the firepower, the limited firepower that Jeremy Hunt had, he has used to 
cut business taxes to encourage to incentivize investment. To incentivize yeah, investment. Yeah, that, that stuck out. And, and that's, no one, know, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. That's quite a good move. I think what we hear from Labour on planning, for example, is much more growth orientated than we've heard from them for, for, for some while. So we're sort of slightly getting there. But, on, is, but on issues like planning reform, like business taxes, dare I say it, our relationship with the European Union. Yeah, I was going to ask you. Um, yeah, I, I think um, our politicians have still got sort of some way to go. And look, you know, growth isn't everything. And there are other, you know, there can be other priorities to for politicians. But, you know, honestly, if you don't get economic growth, you have real pain. And I think what's happening at the moment is evidence for that. So what's going on? I mean, there is a British issue. It's not unique to Britain. Some other countries display it, but we seem to have a bad dose about sluggish productivity, which in large part, it seems to me, is down to a lack of investment, right? If you look at um, investment in research and development, for example, by international standards, it's pretty poor. There's also a set of questions about investment in infrastructure, which obviously holds places, regional economies back. That's part of the of, of what we're talking about here. That's part of the That story. is part of it, yes. Yep. And then there are big and very interesting, I think, cultural questions. It seems to me that, our lack of investment is partly about companies frantically maximising profit to satisfy shareholders who get very hung up on quarterly reports and so on. And it might also be because labour workers in recent years have been so cheap that companies have taken the lowest road to making money and not kept pace with skills, education and technology. That's another two parts of the story. There's elements of that. I, I think they can be overstated. There are aspects of our economy that are, in truth, really strong and you know potentially we should succeed in future so uh, you know we've got the best universities in in Europe um we are pretty strong in some sectors that are likely to be really important technology sectors i think we have a an issue in terms of translating ideas at a kind of university level into businesses yeah. i think we have an issue with if you like businesses it's not so much getting rich quick but kind of settling at a certain level not expanding so they kind of you know the entrepreneurs cash out earlier yeah but i mean we have also had you know we've had a lot of political turbulence that has been really unhelpful. i wrote that down as well um yeah, and, I mean, it's very hard to, to talk about investment and long-term prospects and stability when you're going through prime ministers like a dose of salt absolutely. and for that matter economic approaches yeah because it's no. only what it's, it's about a year since liz trust turned everything up down, no, completely it's I mean, a that, hopeless environment that, for investment. that doesn't help and also if we want to go back a bit the uk had a very strong financial services sector we still have a relatively strong financial services sector oh, brexit but well first of all it, the global financial crisis had a really big impact on our products a you know, long-lasting impact on our productivity and access to finance and then certainly brexit uh, not not just in financial services but in any area where you're doing a lot of trading you know it, it's striking one of the things that was was in the documents in the autumn statement was showing that the UK's trade intensity, i.e. the amount we trade as a country, is the lowest in the G7. You don't really expect that from the UK. You, th you think of us as an outward-looking trading nation. Well, not when we've just left the, the biggest single market on the planet. Exactly, exactly. And and that is bad for productivity. And, and, and that's not just a sort of question of, oh, we need to adjust to the new situation. If our trade intensity is down, that is going to be bad news in the long term. Um, I'm a Keynesian, really. It seems to me that, particularly at a time like this, the state 
has to take the lead and invest, and it probably has to borrow to do that. You can't leave this to the animal spirits of the market. And in fact, one of the reasons we're in the mess that we're in is because that's what we did, right? In a position like this, if you want to stoke investment, if you want to get the private sector back up to speed, there is a big role for government here. And yet what we keep being told is that fiscal conservatism is something you can't argue with. And therefore, you can't even borrow to invest. And that's part of this tragedy. That's what I think. I would distinguish two points, if you like. First of all, how much can we afford to borrow? And I do think we have to be pretty careful about that. I do think... But there is a difference. I know this is a simple and somewhat crude point between borrowing to invest and borrowing for day-to-day spending. there, there There is a difference. But there is also still a point about, in absolute terms, how much... You, you can borrow. I mean, the second point I was going to make is, you know, there is also a question about where we spend our money. And you can, even within constraints, you can tilt our spending more in the direction of useful investment. And I think one of the big challenges for whoever is in government after the next election is thinking about, you know, how do we use the government resources? And there are limits on those resources. Yeah. Um, how do we use those more productively? How can we shift resources away from dealing with the the immediate day to day and where there's you know huge calls for it you know immediately now towards something that will help us in future to you know, either reduce demand on public services or help economic growth? Now that isn't politically easy, but a government that can can be a little bit more disciplined in doing that actually probably could be able to borrow more if it can convince the markets that's what it's doing yeah but first of all i think you do have to have that credibility with the public finances so it sounds like there's some agreement between us on this i mean i suppose in that context and this is my closing thought really the most awful piece of symbolism really if you're talking about a country which has singularly failed to invest and whose infrastructure is very unsatisfactory up close which is part of the problem I mean, one of one of the sort of founding acts of this government, the Sunak part of it, was cancelling a great deal of HS2, which is just miserable in this sort of context, isn't it? It's a it's a sorry tale, whichever way you look at it. You know, having having commenced this process to to sort of leave it, you know, just at Birmingham, you know, Birmingham and Old Oak Common, that is a very bad outcome. And you can make an argument against HS2 from the very beginning. Or you can say, we're going to do it and we're going to do it properly. But you know where we've ended up is the sort of worst of all worlds. It's sort of a parable of, of this government and, and the state of the country more widely, isn't it? Anyway, on that optimistic note, as ever, we will draw things to a halt. Thank you for joining us, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK, wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. I have been away for a month or so. Uh, if there's anybody out there reassured by this news, you will be glad to hear that I am now back for good as Take That Once Sang. If you want a deeper dive into the announcements in the Autumn Statement, listen to our sister podcast Today in Focus with Nasheen Iqbal, who has been speaking to The Guardian's Heather Stewart. You can find that wherever you get your podcast. This episode of Politics Weekly UK was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Kakutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 